You may be seated, and I hope you brought your Bibles with you. Uh, I appreciate so many times, uh, and probably take for granted uh, many times, the wonderful worship that we are provided with our music team. And so it may sound kind of Baptist to do this, but if you appreciate our music ministry and our team and their heart effort, would you say amen? It's just a blessing that they come, and and I know many of you serve in so many ways, but what a blessing that they come to do that. I want to speak to you in 2 Corinthians this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 5. In some of the Bibles that you have, they always put headings in there, and you know those aren't in the original. And uh, those are times, opportunities for us to try to clarify what's taking place. Because as you know, in the originals, there are no verses uh, there are no paragraphs. There, it's a writing and it's a scroll, and it's up to us to determine its meaning. And so it's very important that we understand the context. And as Paul is writing in Second Corinthians, we've said it many a times, I would fill you in as we go, that Paul is writing to those in whom he has already led to Christ. He has had to send them a harsh letter to remind them that there are things that were taking place in their congregation that needed to be addressed. And it looks as though they've done that. There are some characters there. There seems to always be a character in a church. Uh, If you think we have a character in ours, just raise your hand. I didn't say point to anybody. Yeah. We we are designed uh, by God to be his. And until we are his, we live in worldly ways. And we act in worldly ways. And the sad part is even when we become his, we sometimes still act in worldly ways. And behave in worldly ways. And one of those ways that Paul is now addressing us in Corinthians here is that we fail to practice the forgiveness that we have received. And so we live our life imprisoned in some things because we are never set free to truly be useful in ministries in ways that we could be when we would just forgive, when we would truly practice what it is we've experienced. Here it is in 2 Corinthians, verse 5. Follow along with me. Paul writes, If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he's caused it to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. If I have, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Here's why. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are ignorant of his designs. If you want to follow along this morning, it's there in your bulletin. I always try to give a few words of help and encouragement. Sometimes it's probably more confusing. But I want to speak to you about what it really means to be freed up. And how forgiveness truly frees us. It begins here in this part. Let me remind you in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has already written to the Corinthians. And he said this. I'll summarize Verse 6 through 8, it only takes a little bit of leaven to what? 
to ruin or to affect the whole lump. So keep this in mind. I am not thinking of any one of you. I have not been treated badly, horrendously, or upset by anyone so far. (laughs) So I don't have you in mind. But what Paul is writing here, and let's keep it in its context, is that there is somebody who has agitated the church. They're disrupting the peace and the unity and the purity, and they need to be dealt with. One of the hardest things in ministry is that we sweep things under the rug. Last week we learned, let's keep it in context, there's a difference between patience and handling a situation and procrastination when you just sweep it under the rug and hope it goes away. Many times churches, in the lack of leadership, and I'm not picking on any one of ours, we live in a realm in which we need people to help lead, and so we just grab whoever can come, and so we put them in place, and we ask them to lead, and they have to make tough decisions, and they're frustrated on making those, and the next thing you know, it's a whole lot easier sometimes to just say, hey, you know what, let's just let it go, and hopefully it'll go away. And oh, how Satan loves to let those things fester. And as the old saying goes, it's the straw on the camel's back that finally does it. And that's not because of one issue. I pray you here this morning will understand that a lot of times when you get into a frustration or an argument or a situation with someone, it's not actually what you just said that caused the problem. It's not actually many times what just took place that causes the issue. It's that things have been swept under the rug in your own lives for so long until you just can't take it anymore and something triggers it. And the next thing you know, you're in a fight. We used to say in our marriage counseling situations, men, I've said this before in the men's group, man, look over to your wife one night and just simply ask her, how have I helped you become what God wants you to be? Man, you're a team. Boy, you'll have to deal with some forgiveness. Women, it's not just your serving. Look over to your spouse. How have I helped you become what God wants you to be? When you start talking about spiritual things, it puts everything in perspective because you're going to have to overcome some hurts and some frustrations. You're going to have to realize you're not as perfect as I am, or I mean with each other. (laughs) You're going to have to realize that there are all kinds of tensions. Things take place. We don't all communicate the same way. I am one who likes to talk. Do you know that? (laughs) My wife is one who thinks introvertedly. So I have already told the elders, I've told the deacons, I've told the the music team, I've even told Christy probably a thousand times. Just because I say it out loud doesn't mean I'm going to do it. Because I'm processing out loud. My wife doesn't process out loud. I've learned over the years that she thinks about things inside. And so when we want to discuss something sometimes, I'll say, well, let's talk about this. Let's work it out. And I'll talk for hours. And she's patient. And we'll get all done, and I'll say, well, how's that sound? And she'll be like, well, okay. To me, case is done. It's over. Problem solved. We've talked it out, and we're done. Two weeks later. (laughs) I think think you've all been there. Hey, let me ask you about something. Man, what are you bringing up the past for? Why do you have to do that? Why are we dealing with this again? I thought we talked about this. Folks, how you handle situations in a relationship is the difference between whether you really pushed it under the rug or you gave people time to pray about it and actually deal with the surface. I can tell you as a pastor, there are many things that take place in a church that get swept under the rug 
And it's not during the tenure of one pastor. It's from the moment the church begins, people sweep things around. And when it finally comes time to deal with it, we punish. And we punish hard. All that context to say, Paul's writing to these people who are Christians, to this gentleman that had caused an uproar in the church. And here's the important part. They disciplined him. Keep this in context. Paul would not be writing about forgiveness if the church hadn't practiced discipline. Now, if you don't know the steps of discipline, let me give them to you very quickly. One is to admonish. Okay, let's not just jump on the bandwagon and excommunicate right away. All right, the truth of it is let's admonish. Let's instruct. Let's, let's tell our children when things aren't right how to make them right. Let's not just dive on them and punish them and, and, and ruin their lives. Okay, let's not do it in church either. But then there comes a point when people don't listen to that, that we go through a process of getting others together and we encourage and we admonish far enough along until eventually we begin to suspend things. You may not realize this, but if you're in the church and you're willingly living in sin and I find out about it, mm-mm-mm. what the elders are probably going to do is to try to recapture you in love. That's my prayer. To admonish you in a way that you would want to see the importance of serving Christ and his love for you. And that yes, Satan makes it always look so good. And you've been caught on the side, but we want to reclaim you. But if you're going to willingly live in sin and mock Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. This church didn't do that. They practiced the discipline. They admonished this gentleman. And when he didn't listen, they suspended him. If you're suspended in a church, that means we're not going to let you teach. We're not going to let you remain as an active deacon. We're not going to let you remain as an active elder. We're not going to let the pastor remain in his position to do things. We're going to suspend you so that you understand the importance of what it means to get things made right. You can't continue to be a leader and to direct others willingly living in sin. Don't sweep it under the rug. And most importantly to me, I know in our church past we don't do it as often, but when you have the Lord's Supper, to me one of the harshest forms of punishment is when the elders come to you and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to allow you to come to the Lord's table until you make things right. Because we're not going to mock Christ, his death, and his resurrection, and allow you to take something that you claim you're in a right relationship with and you're not. And you're not going to be allowed to take it until things change. And if that doesn't work, there comes that last step which people hate so much. We're going to excommunicate you from the body of Christ. That's the authority you just gave the elders, according to the word. Oh, the chastisement of God can be harsh, and it can be practiced in love. And that's what must have been taken place. We don't get that letter. We don't get all the circumstances. We find out some things as the letter goes on. But this church reached out, disciplined this man, but to a point in which Paul is reminding them, that yes, you disciplined them, and now you're treating them as an outsider. They've been excommunicated. And now that you're treating them as an outsider, that doesn't mean shun them. And that doesn't mean don't talk to them. That means, again, you become all things to all people in order that you might what? Win some to Christ. 
We never should lose sight that 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we are ministers of reconciliation. We never stop trying to reconcile people. So when this person has been treated in a certain way, we begin to pray for them. We begin to accept the fact that maybe they are truly lost. Maybe they really weren't saved. And maybe this profession wasn't real. And God, please use your Holy Spirit and work on them so that they can be reclaimed for the glory of Christ. But we live in a world in which that doesn't happen. And so here's where the letter picks up. Because many times we live in an era in which... Our disciplining of a believer means we turn our back on them, we're fed up with them, we're tired of helping them. This has happened too often, and we just forget about it. Or we constantly remind them how much they have failed. So Paul writes, and he says this, turn and forgive them. To reconcile somebody means to reinstate them. To forgive somebody means that, yes, you are now ready to move forward and to go back to the way it was. It doesn't mean you have to forget everything, but if something that you're not forgetting is causing you to keep bringing it up, you haven't truly forgiven. You haven't truly let it be wiped away. You've said you're okay with it. You see, what happens to many of us is when we say, okay, I forgive you, what you really said was this, okay, I'll sweep it under the rug. But the next time it happens, I'm going to shake that rug back out. And I'm going to remind you of what? All these things you've done, which just is a sign that you never forgave. You did the same thing you blame others of as you sweep it under the rug until it gets to a point where it's so filthy that it all has to come out and it makes a mess. So Paul simply says this, please reach out, forgive him and comfort him. So in your notes, if you're looking, why do we need to forgive people? Well, first and foremost, we don't want them to be overwhelmed with sorrow. Because a person can get to the point in their life when they're ready to give up. They're ready to just quit and to walk away and to not want it anymore. And Satan loves that. 1 John 2.19 even gives us examples when he said they went out from us because they were never really what? Of us. The hard part of it is there are also those that go out from us that really are of us. And we just let them go. We just let our children make decisions sometimes because we want to keep the peace. Let me give you a big cop-out. It's I'm a parent. I do the same thing. Ah, they're old enough to make their own decisions. I can't change it. Oh, come on, parents. Why don't you just say, kids, I'm going to stop praying for you. I'm going to stop helping you. I'm going to stop worrying about your life. I did my part. You, you live the rest on your own. When is the right time to stop loving a child? When's the right time to stop wanting to help a child? And parents, where in Scripture does it say, we no longer are accountable to give them advice. See, Paul's writing to these children in the faith, and he's saying you're going to be overwhelmed by sorrow. Ephesians 4 tells us we ought to forgive people as Christ has forgiven us. In the same way in which we came to Christ, knowing that we didn't deserve it, neither do they. And in the same way, when we finally fall on our hands and knees and say, but Christ, I want to be forgiven, and they do the same, so shall it, they, shall, they shall be forgiven. We've got to do it in the way in which we've experienced. Now, some people don't do it that way. Here's what happens. We sweep it under the rug, and you stay angry for a while. And then when you get together, you try to overlook it all. Time came through. Hey, two years has been by. It's good to see you, brother. And you start reminiscing. Oh, yeah, I remember. We sure enjoyed having you. And you reminisce the good old times. The problem is that reminiscing turns into what? 
remembering. You've heard that. And pretty soon you start remembering, oh, yeah, I remember what you did do to me. Yeah, those were hard times, but now everything keeps falling on what you remembered happened. And then the remembering turns into reminding you. Oh, yeah, I do that. Let me remind you, you were, I wasn't the one that really did that. You're the one that really started that. I mean, do you remember how that happened? Let me remind you that I tried to make And then last and foremost, it turns into reprimanding. If you wouldn't have done that, this would have never happened. Do you see the truth? And folks, what turned out to be a time of hashing out old times becomes a time of just bringing up the dirt and letting them know that you've never truly forgiven them. You just swept it under the rug. So Paul writes to them and he says, folks, you're going to overwhelm people when you do that. It's amazing we live in a world of people who are so depressed people who are overwhelmed, people whose families have fallen apart, people who just have no hope. It's because we live in a world that once you've done something wrong, you're finished. I had a sister that had the same type of mindset. I love her to death. She's wonderful and she's a giver and she got walked on many a times by people because she's such a lover. But because she was such a lover, she developed a principle of being taken advantage of that came out like this. If you've done her wrong one time, shame on you. But if you do her wrong again, shame on her because she let you do it. And so what would happen is you would only get two chances and then you'd be what? Cut off. Man, that's overwhelmed with sorrow. That's giving up opportunities of relationships. If you want relationships, you've got to be willing to forgive. To be set free so that you can do ministry, so that you're not overwhelmed by what's happened in your life because we all have sin. But it's not just being overwhelmed. There's another part of this. Listen to what he says. I beg you to reaffirm your love. This is the part we're talking about. If you're not careful and you don't forgive people, they're going to be overlooked when it comes to love. You do love people. At least you say you do. But why is it you love others more than some? Why can some people make you mad and you forgive them, but others make you mad and you won't? Why can some people seem to get away with a lot and others don't? See, all of a sudden we realize that we have a standard in our life that's very easy for some to feel like they're being overlooked when it comes to love. Because your actions in some cases determine with others that you do love them, you continue to help them, and you see progress. But for others, they feel like, well, I don't even want to ask because I'm not going to get the same treatment that they got, and so they must not love me the same. And though that not be true, that's the impression. So the word that is used here for reaffirming our love is actually a legal term. It's a legal term that talks about um, converging on a principle of love. To reaffirm your love is a principle of reaffirming a standard of what love actually is. To reaffirm love means that you had to make a decision So catch what Paul is saying in one little term, that forgiveness is when all of a sudden we realize love is deliberate. That's to reaffirm. It's deliberate. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is not something that just happens when it's there in the air. Love is deliberate, and we see it in forgiveness because you have to choose to forgive. You have to choose to reconcile. You have to make the attempt to take the first step, which makes sense why the Bible tells us if you get to the altar and you realize that someone has something against you, you go to them. You go to them. It is a choice. 
To reaffirm is to say, this is a decision that has to be made. I have to work through it, and I'm going to have to start it, and it's going to take time. That's true love. When Jesus left the portals of heaven, when he walked on the shores of Galilee, when he made it almost to the place of Golgotha and needed help, and we ascended to the right hand of the Father, it was a decision. He didn't feel like doing it. You may be here this morning and realize that you want to be useful in ministry, but it's hard because you don't feel like forgiving. But that's okay. When you love somebody, you can make the decision to do what's right so that these people don't feel overlooked when it comes to love. We reaffirm our love. It's the result of this discernment, a determining choice. We don't just respond when we feel good. See, we need churches that are true. Just like the church here was a church of discipline. It was using the disciplines so that they could show the proper understanding of how to correct, reproof, and to bring people back into the fold of God. We also need true churches that understand true love. And that sometimes making tough decisions is actually the best decision. Because you have to reaffirm that you've thought this process out, that you're willing to make the decision and you're going to stick to it because you know that's the best outcome. That's a reaffirmation. When you reaffirm your love for your spouse, is it only in the times right after that good meal? I sure love you. That is a good meal, man. I love having a wife that cooks. And I do. Or is it the time in which you went out and enjoyed an evening together? It's just so nice. I just wanted you to know how much I love you. That was just a fun time. Or is it at the end of an argument that you stop and you say, I just want you to know, as right as I am, I want to reaffirm my love for you. As wrong as I am, I want to reaffirm my love for you. You see, why is it that we only reaffirm when we feel good? It's because we have to admit that we've lived in a world that we just sweep the things under the rug when they're tough, and even our love gets swept underneath to where we're not even reaffirming and making the decision to do what is right and deliberate, which would help people from being overwhelmed by all their sorrow and help people to keep from being overlooked when it comes to love. To be useful in ministry, we've got to be a true church. And so all of a sudden we realize you'll find that if you don't do this, listen to what he says in verse 11, you're going to be outwitted by Satan. You're going to be defeated, at least in feelings. Yes, you are filled with the Spirit, but I promise you uh, that the more you reminisce on things and the further you go back, the further you'll run away if it's always bringing up the past. And when it comes to love, and we don't have churches that actually practice what it is we've experienced, then we're going to have people who just feel overlooked and not loved or wanted. And finally, listen what happens when grudges are exploited by Satan. There's nothing better that Satan loves than to undermine the spiritual health of a family or a church. It only takes a little. It only takes one elder Did you hear the vow this morning? If you ever come in conflict with what the doctrines of this church believe and are unable to support the purity and peace of the church, would you not make it known willingly on your own? 
The problem of it is in many churches, we have those that they don't make it known. They live in frustration. It harbors deep within. And the next thing you know, Satan gets in there and he begins to work like this. Well, that's all right. I don't, I don't really care about this because next year we're going to bring on some elders. And these elders are going to support what I want. Because I know they've been here. And when we get enough elders on this side, then we're going to outvote this side and we're going to make a big change. And these are godly men. That 90% of the time probably make godly decisions. But it only takes a little bit of a grudge. And remember, we were told by Paul, Satan roars like a lion. But we learned from Adam and Eve that he also what? He slithers like a snake. And he'll slither right into your marriage. It only takes one opportunity It doesn't have to be that you took your eyes off and you've fallen into sin. It doesn't have to be an adulterous relationship. It doesn't have to be a big lie. It doesn't have to be a a misleading. Do you know what it has to be? Just a tint of unforgiven issues. And Satan will take that and turn it away. And the next thing you know, the spiritual health of that relationship or that church falters. He outwits us. So listen to what he says. If you're not going to do this, Satan comes in. He capitalizes on all these issues, the things that are happening in our hearts, our lives, our hurts, the issues that we go through. He loves scattering God's people. How many churches have you ever been in that when they go through struggles, they work through it and all stay together? Go ahead and go like this. Mm, I don't know. And the reason I know that is because how many families do you know that when they face a crisis, stay together? Yeah, I don't know. See, it's amazing. Satan capitalizes on the grudges, on the unforgiveness, the things that we least think. We're looking for the big issues in life. He's looking for those little slivers that he can get in and take the grudge and the unforgiveness and turn it on you. And the next thing you know, you're mad at your spouse and you're bitter and you can't believe that this is actually happening. And the next thing you know, it's because they don't even love the Lord. And if they did love the Lord, then they would love me. And if they could just see the way I, and next thing you know, you're on Satan's side. You're mad at your kids. You're frustrated at your spouse, your parents. You can't believe they're growing old. I mean, come on, who in the world grows old? It's amazing how Satan takes the truths, distorts them, and you believe them. Then all of a sudden we realize we're told by whom it is that Paul says, you forgive, I forgive. Isn't that kind of what Jesus said? That you forgive, I'll forgive. If you don't forgive, what did Jesus say? Go ahead, see, we don't like that. Jesus even said, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. Or how it is that you forgive others, I'll forgive you. Oh, we don't like to hear that. Because we don't want to hear that what we've experienced is what we ought to practice. You see, when it comes down to it, we live in a world in which people are being overwhelmed by all the sorrow. They're overlooked when it comes to love, and they're being outwitted by Satan. He's constantly getting in on the cracks, and we don't even catch it. Hebrews 12, 15 says that there's a bitterness that creeps into our lives if we're not careful. And that bitterness is what turns against us. Just be hesitant one time. Just be hesitant to forgive. And you're opening the door for Satan to have a chance. And who knows where it'll end up. 
Don't give him the opportunity. He wants to keep those wounds remained open so that he can dive in, keep them sore, and I'll tell you why. If you're focused, let me just say this in close. If you're focused on healing the wounds of each other, you'll stop evangelizing. You'll stop sharing the gospel with others. And the truth of God will come to an end in your community. So let me ask you one hard question. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have reached out, shared the gospel, and brought one person to the Lord in the last year? Oh, yeah, but preacher, that's not my job to bring him in. I'm busy. I'm always out there. I use my life as an example. I I meet people all the time. They ask me different questions. That's not the question. If you're so used to dealing with wounds and just bandaging things, do you know how many times you could share the gospel and you'll just sweep it under the rug? And you'll never talk about their need for forgiveness, the detriment of their sin. And a savior who could cleanse them. Churches that don't grow are usually churches that are so focused inwardly on all the hurts and the scars and what needs to be done that they stop sharing the gospel with everybody around them. You want to be useful in ministry, you got to be obedient. Look what it says in verse 9. I wrote all of this to you that I might test you. It's not only Jesus that tests us. He says, I test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. Let's paraphrase. I'm testing you. Because you're obedient in teaching. You're obedient in mercy. You're obedient in helping around the church. You're obedient in leading worship. You're obedient in cleaning up the fellowship hall. You've been obedient in bringing food. You've been obedient in all kinds of things. I've even been obedient in sharing the gospel. Paul says, but I'm testing you because you haven't been obedient in forgiveness. And that's what Satan is using to ruin your usefulness in ministry. How does forgiveness free us? Hebrew says, lay aside every weight that so easily entangles us or encumbers us and let us lay aside those things and run the race of endurance with our eyes focused and fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. If you don't forgive people, you can't be focused on Christ. And if you're not focused on Christ, you're not growing spiritually. And if you're not growing spiritually, you're not very useful in ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your son willingly came. Father, that he chose, he deliberately thought through the process and said, yes, I will go. I will be obedient in all things. Father, this morning, I pray that whatever the issue in our lives, if it's with our family, our friends, our church, that, Father, you help us forgive, that we too would be set free, not only them, but they would know that there's nothing left to harbor. There's no more dirt to bring up that it's all gone, that we have forgiven. We're ready to restore, reclaim, and reinstate this relationship so that we can focus on sharing the gospel 
so that we can focus on becoming what you want us to be. If it's with our parents, Father, just help us to realize, take the first step, not to try to get it worked out and to make it all right the way we want it, but just to forgive and to let you work in their hearts. If it's with our children, help us to just forgive. Help them to know they're loved. Let them not feel overlooked so that they don't become overwhelmed. Father, if it's in our church right here, help us to be able to forgive so that we can focus on the gospel and we can be useful in ministry for no other reason than that you would get the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.